Well, today we are continuing a series. It's a great day if you're uh, here for the first time. We're beginning a series of chapter one of the book of Esther, looking at making difficult decisions. And often when we come to a decision, there are two forks in the road. Should I stay? Should I go? Should I stand up? Should I back down? And we're using the metaphor of chess to describe that because often decision making is about that very thing. And in our story today, in our account from ancient history in Persia, we're going to find a woman named Vashti's got a decision to make. Should she stay or should she go under severe pressure in the upper echelon of the royal banquet? She's going to have to decide. And often she's going to have to decide what we have to decide, coming face to face with difficult odds. Who's really in control here? What about the things I can control? What about the things I can't? And would it be worth sacrificing myself here for the greater good? It's a classic movie. goes back several years, The Search for Bobby Fischer. And in the culminating scene, one person thinks he's got it all figured out, and another person offers a very generous sacrifice. Let's watch this clip together and feel the challenge of making tough decisions. Should have taken the draw, buddy. Should have taken the draw. You know, it's interesting. The, uh, some of the themes you see there, being willing to sacrifice. Some of the themes of thinking that you're in control and finding out that maybe uh, it's not a guaranteed win. You think you've seen the board, know exactly what's going to happen, and maybe you haven't. The swapping of queens. All of those ideas come to bear in our story today as we look at the challenges of making tough decisions in tough environments. As we do that, I want to tell you a story about a, a tough decision in my life and the life of the church that we had years ago. It was about five years ago. We just moved into the new building, and I had been writing a manuscript for a book about two years previously, and it had uh, wandered around, and eventually the manuscript for my book had made it to New York. I got a phone call from a guy named Mike Huckabee. I didn't know who he was, but he invited me to come up to New York. So I came to New York City and met with him in a hotel there, uh, chatted with him for the first time, and he said, Chad, I read the manuscript for your book. Uh, it's fantastic. I would like to co-author the book with you. I'd like to uh, have you on my TV show and radio show. We'll go on a book tour together. My last several books have been New York bestsellers, and this is going to be the most debated book of 2008 or 10. I can't remember which, because it's a two-year turnaround. And very exciting. Talking about being on Jay Leno and all the different things that might happen as a result of this book. It was almost a guaranteed bestseller. I said, well, you know what, I want to make this decision as a team. I came back and, and we met as a team of elders and exec board members, and we began to look at the pros and cons. So obviously the idea of having a, an instant bookseller um, was very intriguing, the fame, the money, all those aspects. And we as a team began to weigh the pros and the cons, the downside of being associated with a, a person who's in politics, how it might politicize the church, how it might politicize me, how it ultimately might politicize the book. And after much debate back and forth, uh, we ultimately came to the decision as a team that we would turn down the offer. I remember calling his uh, son, his manager, David, and saying, man, I'm so humbled that your dad would be interested. I'm so humbled that he'd be willing to uh, partner and leverage this. But we feel like uh, what we're about as a church is helping people grow spiritually regardless of their uh, political affiliation. And we feel like the very nature of being partnered with you might uh, make us 
um, less effective in what we do in our community. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. And I hung up the phone. Either the dumbest business decision I've ever made, and we made as a team, or a really tough call in a tough hall. And what made that decision easier was two things. Number one, none of us on that team were addicted to fame. And so that didn't color our decision. Weighed it, but we weren't obsessed with it. Two, we had a confidence that whatever decision we made, whether we stay or whether we go here, God would work despite the decision. That we would wait as best we can and there was no burning bush, there was no you know, clear writing on the wall. We made a decision as a team. And I tell you, five years later, I have no regrets of the decision we made. And the book was not a number one bestseller, <laughs> but it was used the way that God wanted to be used. And with as politically divided as our country has become, I think the wisdom I got from our team and that we made as a decision years ago was a wise one. But the two things that helped me, and I think all of our tough halls are going to speak to, what are your real values? What are the things that really motivate you? And can you trust that God might be working in the circumstance, whichever decision you make? See, it's no coincidence that our toughest calls occur during the toughest halls in our life. If you think about the times you've grown the most, the times that you've been challenged the most, the times that you've, you've sought after deeper meaning and purpose the most, it almost always happened during the challenging times. It was during those tough halls you made some tough calls that form your character as a manager, as a father, as a leader, as a husband. So we're going to look today at uh, three toughest things, toughest halls, toughest calls, and the toughest question we can ask ourselves. My hope is that I can offer you an X factor, that when it comes to tough decisions in your life, you can have an X factor that will keep you from allowing fear of what could be or might have been to keep you from making a decision. Two, that even if you're not convinced that God works behind the scenes, that there might be an idea that maybe, as one philosopher said, the more I pray, the more coincidences happen, that there might be some other force besides yourself you can trust in when it comes to decisions in life. I'll start by looking at some tough halls. The toughest hall. Now, there are going to be times in your life that you're going to be tempted. And it's going to be a time in your marriage when your marriage is in a winter season and things are not going well and you're not sure if your spouse even likes you. And it's in those moments you're going to have opportunities to be unfaithful because of the culture of, of where you work. There's a lot of flirting going on. There's a lot of conferences that occur several times a year. And there's a lot of things that happen at 10 o'clock after the conference. And there's going to be a lot of temptations. And you're going to have to know in that tough hall, when the, the current pulls in one direction, where are your real values and where's your real kingdom? There's going to be times you're going to have an addict in your life, and it might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be an uncle or an aunt or nephew who's an addictive gambler, and you're going to have to make a tough call of setting a real hard boundary, and you're going to be accused of things that aren't true, you're going to be gossiped about. And you're going to have to put some consequences to bear, and it's going to be a tough haul for you as well. You're going to be in situations that seem like a difficult lose-lose, and all the benefits of the win-win are like way in the future so far you can't even see them. And that's going to be a tough haul. When making a decision that's right hurts someone you love. And Queen Vashti is in a toughest of halls in ancient history. 
It's about 400-ish, 486 B.C., and we're introduced to Hebrew name Ahasuerus, his Persian name Xerxes. You saw the movie 300. It's based on this time in history. And this king is powerful. He reigned over 127 provinces that range from India to Ethiopia. He is powerful. More than that, he has a kingdom. And he would show off his kingdom, the riches of his glorious kingdom, the excellent majesty. And he decides to throw a party. Because he is said to himself, as powerful as he is, if I could just conquer Greece, I would finally have everything I want. So he is gathered together all of his generals, all of his officers, all of his commanders to have a party to basically show them how much money and power he has so that they will follow him into the conquering of the mighty empire of Greece. So he throws a party. Now this is a party that lasts 180 days. You're like, well, I thought I knew how to party. Now there's a guy who knows how to party. 180 days, and it's basically a PR campaign to show his officers how much money he has to finance this war with Greece. Then he throws a feast. At the end of the 180-day party, he throws another seven-day party. And at this party, he pulls out all the stops. Everyone's invited in. They get to sit on fine linen and purple silver rods and marble pillars and couches made out of gold and silver, mosaic pavements of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. And here we see how powerful and gracious he seems because he serves drinks to everyone in the kingdom, each in a golden cup and each cup custom designed. Royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. And here what we're going to see is classic narcissism because the man seems very generous. He seems very kind. And as long as you serve his agenda... He's going to be the most gracious, kind, generous person you've ever met. As long as you help him accomplish what he wants, you've never found a better friend. You've never had a better boss. You've never had a better partner. You've never had a better spouse as long as you help him get what he wants. And in the generosity of the king, he even seems gracious. He tells everyone, hey, if you're not into drinking, you don't have to drink. He tells his men, no one is compulsory. Everyone can do according to their own pleasure and yet as generous as kind he seems as with classic narcissist he needs you to need him but the minute you no longer serve him you will be discarded which brings us to why this is not only going to be the toughest haul for Vashti but it's also the toughest haul for Xerxes it doesn't seem like a tough haul for him But I think what we discover here is that because he's bought his own press, the toughest haul that any of us ever face is actually success. Success is the toughest haul. Like, I don't believe that. Let me tell you why. As you get more and more and more and more successful, it blinds you to your own arrogance. You start to believe your own press. Success is the toughest haul because it gives you access to confirmation bias feedback. The higher you get in an organization, the less people tell you the truth about your weaknesses, about your idiosyncrasies, about your problems. If you're King Xerxes, who once whipped the sea for coming against his building project 300 times, 
And at this party, he begins to tell you his lifelong dream has been to conquer Greece. And he says, what do you think? Do you think we can do it? What are you going to say? I'm not sure that that's a good idea. I'm not sure we have it takes. Xerxes is going to experience the most humiliating defeat in his life between chapter 1 and chapter 2 against the Greeks. It's going to be devastating. Men, armies, his legacy is going to be destroyed between chapter 1 and chapter 2 in history. And it's because he had the toughest haul. He created an environment that no one would give him feedback about his problems, about his weaknesses. Everyone just kept telling him what he wanted to hear. Confirmation bias feedback. Success can blind our eyes and deafen our senses. And worse, it creates an environment that allows us, and you know this, to do whatever we want with whoever we want with no accountability. Xerxes has truly been able to create an environment that he can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And no one even knows. He can hide it. He can disguise it. He can medicate it. In fact, he will be so humiliated by his defeat in Greece that he will actually offer a reward to the Persians for anyone who can invent a new type of sensuality to medicate the pain of how humiliated he feels. <laughs> but here's the biggest problem with success, and, and I'm not advocating failure. But the reason success is such a tough haul is because it inflates our view of ourself and it decreases our view of God. Who needs God? I did it myself. I'm a self-made man. I didn't need God. I didn't need coincidence. I've done it myself. And that's not all wrong. But where did your talents come from? Where did your opportunities come from? And, and there's a total lack of humility that ultimately leads to your downfall. Which the Bible warns us that pride comes before destruction. Now, imagine you're the one person with this senior leader who decides to tell the truth. <laughs> You're the one person in his entire life who sets a boundary. You're the one person in his entire life who decides not to do a morally objectionable thing he demands that you do. How will that person be treated? And if you are that person and you weigh the pros and cons, will you make that tough call? Here's what happens. I forgot, I want to do a little quiz here. Um, I think narcissistic, self-centered tendencies, thinking we're the center of the universe, is something that we all struggle with. There was an article in the uh, Time magazine, 2014, August, that gave a little quiz that I think is helpful, because I think instead of saying, oh, those narcissists, I'm not them, it's more like those narcissistic tendencies, how many do I have? So here's a little quiz. I, I cut down 40 down to 10. True or false? Modesty and humility, you can answer this to yourself, are weak tra traits for a leader. So true or false? Modesty and humility are weak traits for a leader. I know I'm good because everyone keeps telling me so. Yeah, true, true. I find it easy to justify almost anything I do. I like to be the center of attention and I can talk my way out of anything and can easily manipulate others. I'd start there and say, I have a couple truths in there. At least one, maybe two. So I certainly can like to be the center of attention. And I certainly, as a creative, can justify things I do. 
which means I've got to be very, very aware that those strengths, whether it's my stage presence or whether it's my creative thinking, if I'm not careful and don't put things in my life, I could be very destructive. If you've got two or more truths, you might want to pause for a moment and ask yourself, if I create an environment that's reinforcing my belief that I'm the center of the universe, here's five more. I regularly receive strong negative critiques from people I trust. Regularly? You mean like once every decade? No, that's not regular. Strong critiques? Yes, strong critiques from people you trust. No, false. I often deserve consequences for what happened in a disagreement. No, no, it's always that she was being too sensitive. It's always that he was being rude. It's always that my boss was crazy. It's always that my employees are incompetent. No, I often deserve consequences of what happened in a disagreement, a failure, or misunderstanding. False. I can think of a recent example where I apologized for a specific wrong I did to someone. I am nice to people even when I don't need anything from them or they have gotten in my way of something I want. I have an excessive need for people to acknowledge me and my accomplishments, which I'd say true, but it's not excessive. It's healthy. <laughs> so this time we're going to count up the falses. If you answered false to two or more, you might want to be very careful because you have put yourself in an environment that you're not getting good feedback. And you are currently in the toughest hall. Whether you're cheered on for your grades or your sports or your quarterly results, if you do not have people in your life who can call you on this, you're going to end up destroying the very things you care about. The toughest call. Into this Queen Vashti also makes a feast. And when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded they bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her crown. The implication is wearing only her crown. So the king basically says, I want you to come out and dance before with only your crown, all of my men. And she's got a decision to make. Will she allow herself to be objectified before the king? Now, the king is drunk. He's not really making the best of decisions. But remember, this is a guy who always gets his way. And he says, tell her to come out and dance before the men. In that culture, this idea of dancing naked before a man probably would make her more famous. It's like the equivalent of being on YouTube or getting on Playboy. And so, though, in some sense, we look back at that and say, well, of course I wouldn't do that. Or maybe I would. Or how much money would I make to do that? She is basically weighing a little bit objectifying. But if I say no, I lose it all. I lose my queenship. I lose my chariots. I lose my house. I lose my servants. I lose my prestige. And now we suddenly realize that all of us find ourselves in some unique hall where we're going to have to weigh something we're not comfortable with, something we know is wrong against. But if I don't do it, look at everything I have to lose. And this is a kingdom that celebrated Xerxes. This is a kingdom that celebrated and demanded you always obey this man, this king, this tyrant. See, in this kingdom, you are only valuable if you make the king look good. If you win wars, you're valuable. Your numbers are right. When you came back from Greece, you're valuable. You make the king look good because you're beautiful, 
You're valuable. You are only valuable if you make the king look good. The minute you're no longer a help to his ultimate means, you're disposed of or you're destroyed. And the only way I know of in my situation to come against the pressures of fame or money or luxury or success is to know a king and a kingdom that is higher than the kingdom you're in. You see, there's another kind of king the Bible introduces us to. There's another type of kingdom. And this king doesn't say you're valuable if you make him look good. This king says you're valuable because he is good. And he sees each person as valuable. You're not an object to be objectified. And it's not just for women. You're not an object because of your quarterly numbers. You're not an object of your titles. You're not an object of how big your savings account is. This king says you are valuable because he made you and he loves you. And in these two conflicting kingdoms, we have these two ideas. Am I valuable only if I make somebody else look good? Or am I valuable because the king I really serve is good? And ultimately, Vashti will have to make a decision. Which kingdom does she serve and which king determines her decisions? I can tell you as a pastor, let me just share with you. I, I would just really encourage you to look at your own life. I can tell you how many friends I know who set up on their career and said, I'm building my career and I'm, I'm working late hours for my family and for my marriage. But I have friends who are real goal-oriented. I am as well. But that goal became their God. So much so that the minute that company put anything in the path toward their ultimate position, they switched companies within a few months. Because the company was now dispensable compared to their ultimate goal. And though I'm not against that per se, that was indicative of a bigger problem. Pretty soon it was, I'm not sure my wife, as she's aged, the fights we're having, I shouldn't have to put up with this. And that person begins to swap houses and swap spouses because ultimately everything in his life that he said or she said they cared about or was doing this for became, in, became dispensable if it didn't serve their greater good. Time and time again, I've seen people who said they were working for these things dispose of these things because they no longer serve their real king and kingdom. That is exactly what the king does because Vashti is going to refuse him. And that's where we get to the toughest question. What choice would you make in this situation? What choice will you make in your current situation? And the question is, can you count on coincidence? Can you count on, even if the, the pros do not outweigh the cons? Yes, I have my integrity, but I don't have a job. Yes, I have my integrity, but I've been, my head's been cut off. <laughs> Logic is not going to do it. You're going to need something more. And Vashti is going to count on coincidences, and God is going to use her tough decision to transform world history. She will be banished by the king. We'll talk about that in a moment. And God will use a pawn from within the Persian kingdom to make its way to the end of the board to become a queen. And God will place a queen of light, Esther, into a kingdom of darkness. And this queen, set up at just the right time, will end up stopping a holocaust of the Hebrew people when Haman, the right-hand man to the king, tries to assassinate them years later. But in this moment, Vashti doesn't know all that. She doesn't see all that. She just says, I'm going to count on coincidence. I'm going to refuse the king because I want a marriage 
not an enabling relationship. She's going to count on coincidence. Now, Xerxes would say that's ridiculous. I don't need to count on coincidence. I count on myself. Silly people, foolish people, ridiculous people, weak people count on coincidence of their invisible God. Maybe he wound up the universe, maybe, but he doesn't do anything else. The king says you don't count on coincidence. But here's the problem. When he banished Vashti, because of his anger, because of his drunkenness, he basically decided because she can no longer serve me, she's dead to me. We're going to find out later. He misses her. He loved her. He wished he hadn't done that. But when you are the center of your own universe, things you say you care about get discarded and destroyed and dismissed if they don't serve your ultimate purpose. And I would just encourage you to look at the wake of your life. I do this often. Look at the wake of your life and ask yourself, is there a wake of devastation behind you? When you look at how people who worked with you professionally personally, your family life, people of different personalities and backgrounds. It's one thing to say, hey, there was a bad person here. That was actually a self-centered person here. Do you see a pattern of carnage that people you used to be good friends with, people you used to really care about, have been discarded? In all areas, all ages, all personalities, there might be a theme, and the theme might be our own self-centered hearts. Let's look at the wake of our life and see whether or not we are using people simply as means to our own end. Because after these things, and there's four years between chapter 1 and chapter 2, when he gets destroyed by the Greeks, and it's after these things, his wrath finally goes down. That's a long grudge, my friends. Four years of being mad that she humiliated him. Four years of being mad he got humiliated by the Greeks. And it was then he remembered Vashti, not as the thing he discarded, but as the woman he loved. And he remembered what she had done. She was the one person who brought truth into his life, the one person who was willing to not buy his own press. And he remembered what was decreed against her and said, I wish we hadn't done that. Meanwhile, Vashti's got a decision to make and she's got a choice. She's going to count on coincidence and she's going to have to weigh some things. And she chooses ultimately to refuse. She refuses the king for the first time in his life. Someone says no. And in doing so, she's got a way. If I make this tough call, all the success I'm going to leave behind. Oh. And that's why I said success can be the toughest haul. Because the more you have, the more you have to lose when you take the stand. When you live a different kind of value system. When you walk a different way. And when you follow a different king. But if you have a different king and a different kingdom, you know what helps you do? Not be fearful of the pressures of a, of a different value system. You find this kingdom, this, this dark kingdom that seems so powerful, is actually incredibly insecure, as we're going to see in a moment. Incredibly insecure. And Vashti's going to take a stand to refuse. And as she does, she brings a whole different kind of value system into that kingdom. A whole different way of treating women, a whole different way of seeing marriage, a whole different way of, of leveraging leadership. Because she's not going to be governed by her fears. I saw an interview recently with the CEO of Ford, Alan Mulally, or he was, former. He took over when Ford was in a very, very bad place. 
And he was able to make some very tough decisions in a very tough environment because as a person of faith and a person of prayer, he served a different king in a different kingdom. He stood before the news reporters when he was first interviewed. And uh, most people sort of get scared because it's the mighty media who are going to put you on your toes. And the first reporter said, how do you what makes you think that you could run Ford? You've never run an automobile company in your life. Did you know there's over a hundred thousand parts from all over the world that come together in every vehicle? Alan said, well, good question. He said, "Uh, I used to work at Boeing and we had over one million parts per plane. They came from all over the world, and we had to keep that thing in the air. <laughs> Immediately, the people laughed and said they hired the right guy. But more than that, he came into a culture that did not address problems, and he had to transform the culture. We are going to address problems together. We're going to work together. We're not going to hide our issues. He refused a government bailout. Just yesterday, I was sharing a story. Somebody said he was in the hall the day that Alan was on his way to negotiate one of the largest equity loans so they didn't have to get a government bailout by putting the whole company's equity up against this loan to save the company. And as he walked through the hall, Alan said, hey, pray for us. This is the largest equity ask in modern history. Prayer and strategy. More than that, he decided to transform the culture by letting the, the, the Ford salesmen know how much they cared about them. So he told his senior management not to say we need you, not to say we appreciate you, not to say we, we um, honor you as our salespeople. He said, we're going to start using the language of love. I want you to start telling our salespeople and our sales companies that you love them. He said, it took a while for this new culture to step in. He said he had all the senior leaders stand up at one of the conferences. They brought the folks together doing this one-on-one, but he wanted to do it corporately as well. Hey, we, wanna, we want you to know how, much, uh, how we feel about you. Guys, let's tell them. We love you. <laughs> but that culture got transformed. It was more than a buzzword. It was a new kingdom. It was a new way of thinking. It was a new way of living. And that new kingdom transformed another kingdom. And why is that? Because when you know a different king in a different kingdom, you don't have to be governed by the forces of fear and worry. Here's the issue, though. If you decide to make one of these tough calls in your life, I can almost guarantee that things will get worse. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but almost always time you take a tough call, things get worse before they get better. And that's certainly true with Xerxes. He begins this panic mode. Oh, my goodness. He asks the wise one, what are we going to do here? Well, if she stands up to you, everyone's going to stand up to everybody. They start passing laws. They malign her character. They accuse her of things. She is thrown out of the kingdom in ways that They're just horrific. They pass laws. No woman anywhere in the kingdom is allowed to speak up ever, ever, ever. And you find out this king that looks so powerful is actually so incredibly insecure. But God would say to you, whatever the pressures are, no matter how big it seems, no matter how overwhelming it seems, God would say to you and I this. What decision would you make in your current tough hall if you knew for sure that you could count on coincidence. Vashti may never have seen the long-term benefits that God would use her life to save an entire race. So she just had to count on coincidence. God uses these tough halls in your life to draw you closer to Him, to teach you things that you are blind to, and to help you discover a strength in your life, a value in your life, and not let you be governed by fear. And I'd like you to hear a story of someone who's done just that. 
Can we give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Brenda? Brenda, come on up. Thank you. Praying for you. My parents did not go to church, but they said they wanted me to go, so I went to church with my best girlfriend, and she was Catholic. Uh, church was pretty confusing and scary for me. Um, and I thought the best part was walking home because we used to walk past an A&W and we'd always get a big frosty mug of root beer. I eventually ended up singing in the choir in, in the loft with my girlfriend. And when it was time for communion, everyone in that choir, except for me and my twin brother, would get up and march down the stairs to the front of the altar. How's that for being singled out? In order for me to even qualify... For communion, I would have had to go to something called confession. You had to go to this beautifully carved wooden phone booth, share your worst sins, and the priest would dish out penalties. So here I am, up in the choir loft, looking down at everybody. My girlfriend, her classmates, they've got their hands in prayer. They're walking down the aisle. And I realize that they've been to confession They were sinners, and I didn't even qualify for that. Except for a brief time in college when I listened to a guy yelling and screaming fire and brimstone. I never went back to church, never went back to God, and probably even when some people would have. I had opportunities, and I'll list a few of them. My husband and I founded an eyeglass company revolutionizing the industry with glasses in an hour concept. We started this business at our home on our dining room table. It's now the largest international eyeglass retailer in the world, and I did not thank God. After 14 years and surgery to remove fibroid tumors, I finally got pregnant, and I got my wish, a girl. I didn't thank God. I got pregnant again, and I got my wish, a boy. But suddenly... With no warning, I miscarried at five months on Labor Day. It's always a calendar holiday reminder. It was a very, very sad time. But miracle, I got pregnant again, and it was a boy. And I didn't turn to God and thank him for this second chance. Because of our worldwide eyeglass stores, we had a house in England, and my husband traveled back and forth for weeks at a time. So I was essentially a single mom. At the same time, I took care of all four parents in our home consecutively, one after another, and every one of them had all kinds of health problems. I kept my promise to my mother-in-law to take care of her, granting her her dying wish to die at home. It was the most stressful thing I had ever done. But I did notice that she was a very faithful woman, and she looked forward to God. My kids at age 15 and 12 were passengers in a van in a horrible rollover van accident. The van rolled across a wide medium over two lanes of oncoming southbound traffic. The girl sitting next to my son was killed. The boy on the other side went out the window. Four of the nine people in that van had taken their seatbelts off to be more comfortable, and they all went out the window and landed on their heads in the middle of the highway with oncoming traffic. And I still remember my words. I said, with the grace of God 
and the fact my kids wore their seatbelts. Their lives were saved. But I had no relationship with God. And then something happened that really got my attention. My husband is away in England, and a friend came to stay at our house, which was common. And he handed me a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He said, I read this on the plane. I finally get it. I'm giving it to you. Read it. I can't lie anymore. I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to quit my job. And he did both. And he was the CEO, second in command of all our worldwide businesses. He told me that my husband had a secret double life. He had several Russian girlfriends. And the present one, quote, had a baby a while ago and said it was his. I was shocked. I was devastated. I was shattered. I'm a private person. Things like this just don't happen to people like me. I'm a good person. It was so salacious. I was humiliated, embarrassed, mortified. I told no one. I felt trapped. I was terrified. I was a coward. I was a fool. My self-esteem was shattered. I was dying. I was gasping for breath. I was livid. I was enraged. I knew I had to find good people. I was so wrecked. I could only think of two places, the Boy Scouts and church. (laughs) I read the book, A Case for Christ, and months later, somebody told me about a new church called Horizon. So I came in. I didn't look at anybody. I sat in the back. I couldn't speak. It was all I could do to get through the service without having Niagara Falls coming out of my face. And gradually I calmed down, and I was amazed that some people actually volunteered to come up on stage and tell the most amazing inspirational stories of sin and redemption. And that was something I would never, ever do. My divorce was an emotional and financial nightmare. It took four and a half years. I was in court in front of a judge 36 times. I did not even believe in evil before this experience. I thought people were just overreacting. (laughs) Two years into it, a former employee told me that my husband was arrested for criminal felony bigamy in England, and I was told he had secretly married his girlfriend a year and a half before he even filed for divorce. With every new revelation, there was a temptation to take revenge, get bitter, angry, all over again. I was disappointed in the ponderous court system. It's a nasty business. I felt like I had to ensure justice. I listened intently to Chad. I joined a a woman's book group. I read the Bible and endless books on forgiveness. I decided to get baptized, so I called the church and said, put me on your list, and when you decide the date, let me know what that is. Well, would you believe that the date the church arbitrarily picked just happened to be my wedding anniversary? I would always remember that date I was married, and instead of being reminded of betrayal, I would have something new to celebrate. God's forgiveness and grace. I decided it was a great date to forgive my husband. 
So I just decided to get baptized and forgive him at the same time. Since God had forgiven me, I could forgive my betrayer. In the end, it took two lawyers and me, now at the functional equivalent, uh, having acquired all the skills of a, a law intern, to get me divorced. It took four and a half years, and I was divorced on New Year's Eve. It was all trauma and drama till the last minute, but God was with me. And what a great date. It'll remind me of grace and freedom, and I'm always guaranteed to have a party <laughs> and a new, new Year celebration. I probably looked free most of my life. I had a family. We had the business, the success. I lived in a big, beautiful English country house on 19 acres in Indian Hill. But I did not have God. And the painful times brought up areas in which I was not free. Seeing my part in a failed marriage. Seeing my part in enabling a narcissist needing to bring him to justice, wanting revenge, and needing to forgive myself. My four-and-a-half-year divorce experience was an excruciating, oxygen-sucking, swimming-through-quicksand experience, and I can sum it up with one word, blessing. It turned out to be a blessing after all for all the wonderful people that it brought into my life that I never would have even met if it hadn't been for this experience. And it brought me to God, and it brought me to freedom, and I realized that my future was not written in stone. I did not have to be bitter with God in my life. Now I had seen that he had gotten me through the toughest halls. I could follow him into the future. And my life was still unwritten. Well, today just begins a journey of whether or not we can count on coincidence. And that may be a new concept for you. That may be a ridiculous concept for you. I would just like you to hear some stories of folks who have seen that happen in their real life. In fact, Brenda has uh, been volunteering with us for about 10 years now. So every week you come in, see stuff on the screen, almost half the time she's back in the booth volunteering because, because God's been so generous to her, she wanted to be generous to others. So she's been serving you for 10 years, and you probably didn't even know it. So thank you, Brenda, for your story. Thank you for what God did in your life. As you go through this journey together, if you'd like to use this on your own, you can grab one of these booklets on your way out. Our team's been writing this for the last six months, preparing for this series. So you can just use this for your own during the week to kind of dig more into this or ask questions about it or get some other resources. Or if you'd like to go through a group and just ask some questions out loud, whether you believe this or not, whether you're wrestling with this or not, we have several groups, different nights of the week. You can sign up for that out by our information table or on our website, horizoncc.com. Thanks for being here today. If you came prepared to give, you can. Thanks again. We'll see you all next week for part two. Thanks again.